Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And uh, we were talking last week about the law, the Torah, Torah meaning law, or at least that's one of the translations of the word Torah. Uh, there are numerous words in uh, in Hebrew that could be considered to mean law or commandments, and uh there seems to be some confusion about exactly what that means, partially because of the way in which things are privately interpreted by those who translate the Bible, and partially because of our understanding of the word law today. Uh, and this has come down through the ages. Before there was uh, fake news, there was fake good news. And uh, people have been falsifying information for their own agenda for thousands of years. It's called bearing false witness or, or you know, uh, misrepresenting the truth, which would, should be considered a sin, uh, something a violation of at least the law. <laughs> because uh, by misrepresenting the truth, uh, you can lead people astray and cause harm to people. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things when we see the statutes of Moses, which some people consider to be the law, uh, although the statutes were meant to be more like uh, guides to help you understand the law. And the law, we were also given the Ten Commandments, the Ten Statements, uh, by God written, not the handwritten ordinances of men, but the law of God, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Statements given, assumedly by God, according to the Scriptures, to Moses, who gave them to the people. Now, God, from the beginning, has always wanted to write the laws upon the hearts and minds of His creation, because man was created by this thing we call God, this divine intelligence. And God endowed man with certain rights. We see that in the early texts of Genesis and references throughout the Bible, that man is endowed by rights. We see it again repeated in the Declaration of Independence, and we that is codified in the laws of the United States, in the U.S. codes. So, it is a matter of the statutes of men. That man is endowed by his creator with certain inalienable or unalienable rights, as some people like to say. So those rights come from some source other than men. They're not privileges granted to men by other men, by kings or Sanhedrins or rulers. And uh, we'll probably do a, a video on... Uh, some talks by lawyers and justices concerning natural law and the distinction of natural law from the legal system. And he quotes, one of them quotes uh, uh, Thomas More, who was tried by the King of England or by English law. And in his defense, he talks about can, if the world is round, can a decree of... Uh, 
I'm paraphrasing here, can a decree of uh, the king make it flat? And if the world is flat, can a law by parliament make it round? And this was the point, is that there are certain things that are intrinsically true because they're true. Uh, he wasn't making a case for a round or flat earth. He was making a case that there are certain things that we cannot change even if we are the king or the ruler of heaven and earth or the parliament uh, or whoever. God does not even change the laws. Uh, this is one of the things that I've always had kind of a problem with miracles, studying miracles from the early days of my studies. I don't really believe that Miracles are overthrowing nature, but are representations of the true nature of mankind. That we should, miracles, what we call miracles, should be an everyday occurrence if we are in accordance with the law of nature. And one of the reasons I say this is because the law of nature is also defined as divine will, or right reason, or the will of God. These are terms that are used to define what people believe the law of nature is. The law of nature is not determined by kings and parliaments, legislatures, presidents, prime ministers. It is determined by whatever created it, whatever established nature, and therefore it is established by nature's God. And so... When people talk about the law being done away with, they need to be clear, at least in their minds, or they should be clarifying in their mouths, what law are they talking about? Is, was the Torah done away with? Jesus is quoting the Torah many, many times. Uh, according to the New Testament, we see quotes from the Septuagint. And, and the last shows that we did uh, last week on the Torah, we pointed out that there are three versions of the Torah floating around, you know, and that there are discrepancies. We just used one example, uh, you know, from the time of Noah's flood to the to the birth of Abraham was counted as uh, in, in one Torah is counted as uh, 292 years in another Torah, which is the Septuagint, the translated Torah. It's 1,072 years. And then, of course, in the Samaritan Torah, it's uh, 942 years. There's quite a bit of difference between 292 years and, you know, a 1,000 or more years. And so that right away brings all of them into question. Which one is correct? And you would... Of course, most people will err on the side of the Jewish Torah, which is what Protestants and Jews use today, generally speaking. But the Greek Septuagint was quite a bit more uh, than the 290 years that we see in the first one. It was 1,072 years. So, that's a huge thing. It has been commonly understood, although there's many modern Christians who object to it because they have a private interpretation as to who Melchizedek is. They believe that Melchizedek was Jesus. And, uh, or, or some, you know, like the Holy Spirit or something. Uh, 
but uh, and they think that he just appeared out of nowhere because he he kind of appeared out of nowhere in the text that we have. But there's a lot of other texts that have been written about for thousands of years that make it very clear in the minds of those who did the writings at least that uh, Melchizedek was Shem. And if we look at the chronology of Shem's life, Shem was still alive when Abraham was alive. Because supposedly Shem had this long lifespan that pre-existed the flood and whatever caused the flood to take place. A man's lifespan was shortened at the time of this flood and for some reason at the time of this flood. And, you know, I believe that. I think that's true. It's not a matter of faith. It's just uh, just looking at my studies. See, there are certain things that I look at that is a matter of, you know, the basics of faith in God and therefore faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it the absolute essentialness of the accuracy of was it 292 years or was it 291 years or was it 1072 years those are not a matter of faith those are a matter of figuring just like I, I pointed out that in Mark he clearly did not have a good lay of the land when he talked about the events in Mark's gospel. That Mark probably was never in uh, Jerusalem or in in what we call Israel today. Because he didn't seem to know exactly where certain locations was based on what we see written in Mark. But the basic story is there. The basic story that people are always looking to try to find slight little differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and you can find them. But they aren't, uh, they aren't affecting the actual teachings of Jesus Christ. I just listened to, somebody shared something with me, uh, a video on Saul of Tarsus, Paul. And uh, his early journey. And I listened to it this morning as I was running around doing things. And uh, I thought it was amazing that they're trying to tell us the essential character of, uh, of Paul's ministry. And they never mention the fact that he is actually bringing relief to areas of the Roman Empire for Christians during a dearth. It's always like he's just out being a missionary, going out, talking about Jesus. And that's not actually, he was actually fulfilling a role, which was a part of the daily ministration. I mean, even Stephen, when Stephen was executed, he was executed for perverting funds or diverting funds from the temple. They said, what right do you have to collect these funds? They should all go to the Pharisees at the temple. But of course, in the temple at that particular time, there were Christians actually working daily in the temple and collecting funds and rightly dividing bread from house to house. But, but of course, we know that if we're, well, we should know that if we're actually going to follow Jesus, that uh, they did not depend upon a central treasury in the temple built by Herod to store those funds that they depended upon a network of congregations. Now, 
this is this is part of the fact that so many people, so many Christians, you know, well, we believe in the Old Testament, but they don't even know what it says. That we believe in, you know, whether we should take the Torah that is presented by the Jews uh, and uh, and used by the Protestant. We don't even know what's really in it. Synagogues. It's well known in history that a synagogue, back at the time of Jesus Christ and for a thousand years before, a synagogue was ten families. That's the way it was constructed. It was ten families. You can go to Greece and they talk about symposia, which is a word we find in the Greek text of the Bible and Mark. And a symposia was ten men. Usually ten men from ten families. And those, that's what a symposia was. I mean, there are all kinds of literature in Greece that talks about the symposia being uh, drinking buddies. You know, ten drinking buddies. And, uh, and that, one of the reasons that's promoted a great deal is because people don't really want to know how important a symposia was because those ten buddies were also a platoon in many of the Greek armies. Uh, because many of the Greek armies were voluntary armies they that would suddenly muster themselves in the case of an attack. And so, yeah, a symposia played a very important role in Greek politics. And a synagogue played a very important role in Judaic politics. Because that was the foundational unit in the society of Israel is... That idea of family. Family is the corporation of God. That's what a family was. So this idea of uh, a synagogue is simply ten families. That was commonly understood by everybody in those days. Whether you were Greek or uh, Corinthian. Uh, because Corinthians weren't just Greek anymore. At one time, Corinth would be considered a Greek state or a Greek city-state. and uh, But it was destroyed long before Jesus was even born. I mean, destroyed down to the last uh, stone, knocked down. And then it was rebuilt by Caesar, who encouraged and helped finance a large group of people to go there. So there were a lot of Romans there, there were Greeks there, there were all kinds of people there because it was a major trade route. And it, it because of its location, it built up rather quickly. But you couldn't really say that it was Greek because there were so many different people there. But they knew what this idea of ten families, this building block of a community. And of course... In the early days of Rome and the early days of many of the Greek city-states, one of the things that was very important besides military protection was the way in which you took care of the needy of your society. Every society has, you know, some family where the father dies and maybe even the sons die. We see that way back with Naomi and Ruth. The father is probably put to death and the sons were probably put to death and uh, there were two daughter-in-laws and uh, Naomi gonna go back to uh, Israel where Naomi had right to land and now she wasn't gonna have any more children and her daughters both 
uh, were married, our daughter-in-laws were both married to men who are now dead. So they're not going to have any children uh, by Naomi's bloodline. So theoretically, they're not going to necessarily inherit the land. Now, this is all based on what we see as statutes in the Torah. You know, that that if she goes back there, she's not going... She will inherit the land as long as she lives. But she's she if she marries somebody else, they are not going to inherit the land. Unless that somebody else marries them for the purpose of giving her an offspring... And and that person is related and is a close relation and, and is going to give her an offspring that she can count as the son of her first husband. So if you understand all that and why that is, the reason that is in the statutes of Moses is because it has to do with the law of nature. And it has to do with the right to choose. And it has to do with the dominion of man to have dominion and to be righteous in his generations. Remember, Noah was picked because he was righteous in his generations. And there's a reason for that. Because everything is following the law of nature. We don't always understand what that is or what that looks like or why things are the way they are. But the more we understand the law of nature, the more we will understand that. Which is one of the reasons why in order to make people good slaves, (laughs) you take them away from nature. Uh, You take them away from where they will observe the law of nature. And then you start supplanting what they would have learned from the law of nature with other information that may contradict the law of nature. Now, that gets a little bit headier than I wanted to take it. But the point is, is that you go back to Naomi and Ruth and Ruth eventually marries Boaz. And there's a whole story there. And in order for her to marry Boaz... Uh, because there's another relative that is making a claim on marrying her because he will get to manage her property if he marries her. Because she, the two daughter-in-laws, one went back to their own family, but one followed Naomi saying, your family is my family, even though she had no offspring by her husband, which was Naomi's son. But when she goes back to to Israel, long story short, she ends up marrying Boaz. In order to do that, they called a council to resolve the law. Literally a jury to resolve the law. And what that was, was elders of the community. And those elders were elder men who were already in synagogues of ten. And they sat and determined what was the law and how it should be applied. And their word became law because they said, yeah, Boaz gets to marry her. And now Boaz's children will be counted as her first, the firstborn will be counted as the firstborn of her dead husband. And that firstborn of her dead husband uh, will now take 
the heirship that had passed down to him through the children of Boaz. And of course, eventually, from the children of Boaz and Ruth comes Jesus Christ. This is all a part of the natural law that is written into things. And men try to pin down these natural laws and they put them in the form of statutes to explain them. But that's not really the way it works. It may be correct. It may not be correct. But it again falls back on an interpretation. And so where does that interpretation come from? Well, let's take it back to the law of the Ten Commandments, the the Ten Statements that were supposed to be written upon your heart and upon your mind. If it's written upon your heart and upon your mind, when you're sitting on a jury deciding fact and law, hopefully you will decide rightly because God is in your heart. And if God is not in your heart, you will decide not rightly. You will decide based on your private interpretation. See, private interpretation is any interpretation that does not include the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, everybody's going to say, well, I've got the Holy Spirit, and I've got the Holy Spirit, and I've got the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And kind of the truth and consequences of who's got the real Holy Spirit. And eventually, we find out. And this is what they're telling us in the New Testament. of By their fruits, you will know them. Remember that the kingdom of God was to be taken away from the Pharisees. See, Paul became, was a Pharisee. He studied under, uh, you know, one of the top teachers in, uh, recognized teachers in all of Israel. And eventually he was named as one of the Sanhedrin. But he was named as one of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that was a descendant of that Sanhedrin that we talked about that suddenly disbanded itself because of corruption in Jerusalem. And, then a new Sanhedrin took its place. Almost immediately after that, or shortly after that, Jesus comes along and he appoints 70. So there's two Sanhedrins that are mentioned in the New Testament. Although they don't call one the Sanhedrin. They call one the Sanhedrin and the other one they call the 70. Well, of course, Sanhedrin means the 70. So Paul was a member of a renegade Sanhedrin (laughs) and uh, Aquila and Priscilla were members of the Sanhedrin of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about these two Sanhedrins when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, uh, there was at least two Sanhedrins, the 70, and the one they call the Sanhedrin, which means the 70. And one was the Sanhedrin of, well, actually Caiaphas. I don't want to say anything bad about Caiaphas, because I actually believe Caiaphas eventually converted 
to Christianity, to the way, because that's what Christianity was called, the way. And uh, that uh, way of Christianity was different than the way that was promoted by the Sanhedrin that was operating in the temple that Caiaphas sat on. And to each of us, we will eventually have the choice of following the way of Christ or the way of the Sanhedrin of Caiaphas. And like I said, I believe that Caiaphas eventually repented and started following the way. And uh, I've explained that, why I come to that conclusion. Now, again, that is my conjecture. And again, we always have to, you know, you study a great deal of information. You you look at all these ancient manuscripts, uh, new archaeological discoveries, and you look at all these facts, and you can come to all kinds of conclusions. Some of them will be right. Some of them will be wrong. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has to be the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And that's that's extremely important. When you're studying Paul, which they don't seem to really catch in the little short 30-minute video that I saw this morning, Paul preached Christ first. You could hear constantly in the narration where they were interlacing modern Christian thinking that does not follow the way into their interpretation of what Paul was doing and why he was doing it. And that's why I thought it was so interesting that they give this whole 30 minutes on where Paul went and all this stuff and supposedly were to believe that he was always just going out to be a missionary and preach the gospel. That was his full role. When he was actually bringing life-saving supplies to people. Uh, he was helping them organize their tens, hundreds, and thousands. Their tens because they had their synagogues. Early Christians had their synagogues. We call them congregations. Synagogue is just a, uh, you know, it's a, it's kind of a Greek word. It's Yeah, it's taken from words that are Hebrew, but it was also used by the Greeks. And uh, But there were the synagogues of Satan that we see referenced in the New Testament. And then there was the synagogues of Christ, which were just a group of ten families. And they were networked together the same as they had networked together for thousands of years. You could even go up and find the Teutons. They did this same thing. You get the early Romans, they did it. They had their hearths, which were ten or twelve families. And uh, they gathered together. And they connected themselves so that when Jutes or Teutons were to attack them, they would form an army overnight, a militia overnight, to ward off this this attacking army coming down from the north, or 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 maybe uh, uh, the people coming from uh, across the sea. Uh, Hannibal and his men they would have to form an army to fight Hannibal. And they would do it because they were already pre-organized in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. Ten families already creating the bonds of a society through a social network that provided welfare throughout the community to the needy of their society. And that was what community really was. The word community coming from like the same word as communion, 
that communion was sacks of bread, loaves of bread, to help people get through this week when there's a shortage of bread. And that created bonds within the society that held it together so that if another attack or an earthquake or a volcanic eruption or a famine were to take place, the people would already be organized to deal with that issue. The alternative to that is to go get a king. He's going to organize the people. He's going to draft certain people. He's going to force them into uh, conscriptions. He's going to force the contributions of the people to take care of his military. And, of course, if you do that, you're, you're going to go back into the bondage of Egypt where you're not going to have 100% right to your labor. 20% of your labor is going to belong to this ruler, to the Pharaoh, to the Caesar, to to Herod, to, to Saul the king. And he's going to force you to contribute to his army. Now that's called foolish by the prophets. It's called the status quo today. Well, that's the way we do it today. It's not the way they're supposed to do it. It's not the way that uh, David was supposed to do it. And it tells you to write that down in your constitution, back, like I say, in Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen, that your leader, if you, you elect a leader, a king, a pre- president, a prime minister, or your own legislature, your own Sanhedrin, uh, you they can't do anything to return you to the bondage of Egypt. I just heard on Epic Times this week, somebody is saying that, oh, he hasn't paid taxes in, what, I don't know, seven years or 17 years, and now it's on Epic Times, just when they hire 80,000 new IRS agents. I I pity the guy. Because, you know, he says there's no place for the IRS in the Constitution. He doesn't understand the Constitution. There's a contract clause in the Constitution. And, yeah, you may owe the IRS. I don't I don't know his particular circumstances, but he may have a debt to the IRS. I, I admit that the money he will pay in will be the unrighteous mammon, <laughs> but he still may have to pay the unrighteous mammon. He may be in bondage. You know, he's taking licenses off his car now because he says, well, they have no, I don't use it commercially. Although he may have bought it commercially. I don't know how he bought it, where he bought it from or who he bought it from. But chances are he only bought a commercial title. And so if that's all you got, then you probably need a license on your car. But he doesn't, we've, we've explained all that so that people understand. But the same thing as I was mentioning earlier in the show that if you're on a jury deciding fact and law, which is the way it was in America originally, back before the Constitution and after the Constitution. And actually, you could go all the way back to England, uh, the, the trial of William Penn, which he was being tried for having a religious service uh, on Sunday that was not the Church of England. And so he was arrested because he, that was a violation of the statutes of parliament, the Continental Act of 16, I don't know, was it 1619? You tell me. But in the trial, uh, you know, they presented the evidence. I mean, he had, a, he was at a religious meeting 
He was arrested, along with a lot of other people at that religious meeting. (coughs) And they were being tried for violating a statute of parliament, the Conteventical Act. And they they were, you know, down uh, figuring out who, was he guilty or not guilty, the jury, when the jury went to make a decision and finally the jury came back and said they could not make the decision. They could not, they couldn't get enough guys to say guilty or not guilty. Well, the judge was just livid. And the judge sent them back, but of course, he didn't send them back to the regular room. They had to hold them overnight, so they he sent them to prison. He put them in a dungeon, in a prison. And they didn't get any food. <laughs> they didn't get any water. And uh, they came back the next day, having slept in this dirty, filthy, scummy prison. And uh, as they were coming into the courtroom, lots of people have now come to the court. Because they want to know, can an Englishman have right to conscience to go and worship in a religious meeting the way he wishes to worship in a religious meeting or not? And so lots of people were in there and they were actually tossing them food because they hadn't eaten since the day before. But part of this was for support. They're tossing it to the jury as the jury is coming in. So they they march in and... uh, now they have made a decision. Uh, after the judge had put them into prison, tightened his grip, so to speak, they now say, not guilty. <laughs> it helped them make the decision that, that this is tyranny. This judge is just being a tyrant. He's trying to force our... our and when push comes to shove, they they decided, okay, not guilty. And they decided, well... It didn't end there. Everybody didn't get to go home. Eventually, uh, uh, you know, William Penn uh, got to go home. and uh, uh, But they kept the jury in jail. Because they fined the jury for not deciding the way the judge wanted them to decide. <laughs> so now they all have to go back to jail. He's going to get his pound of flesh. Well... There was a rich man on the jury. And, you know, going, you're not getting paid to be on the jury. Though these people have all left their homes or were dragged off the street to become members of this jury. And so they are going to suffer serious financial loss because they, they're not getting jury leave from their employers. Uh, they're just not making anything while they're in this dungeon. He paid their fine. They could all get out if they paid their, the, if, so, if their fine was that was imposed on them by the judge uh, for evidently some sort of contempt of court, and it was paid by the rich man, but he wouldn't pay his own fine, and so he kept going back to jail and was kept in jail for quite some time, and uh, and every day I guess he would come back up and uh, be sent back because he wouldn't pay the fine, and eventually they released him, but. That case is still quoted, well, had been still quoted in America for hundreds of years. And because the jury has a right to decide fact and law. And uh, I was actually called to jury duty one time. And I read in the jury pamphlet 
that uh, contrary to popular belief, I'm quoting here, or pretty close to quoting, that a jury does not have the right to decide the law. And uh, as a, contrary to, it wasn't popular, but as, according to what some people think, a jury doesn't have the right to decide law. Well, it's in the Constitution of many of the states that a jury does have the right to decide fact and law. And it's in the uh, Supreme Court rulings. And it is in countless documents that it's not only a right of a jury to decide fact and law, it's an obligation to decide fact and law. But I can tell you this, in America today, in the United States today, most juries do not have the right to decide fact and law. And they don't have that right because they waived that right. And they don't necessarily know when they waived that right, but I, I did a whole series on juries. And, you know, I wrote a series of letters back and forth to the judge and then eventually to the head of the administrative courts of the state of Oregon. And I wrote those letters back and forth. And I've recorded them on our website at Preparing You. And they're probably copies at org, So that people can read them and understand that you, in America, you did have the right to decide fact and law. You did have a right to 100% of your labor. Nobody could take away your labor because that's an inalienable right to your labor. The the statutes of the king, the statutes of parliament, the statutes of the legislature, the signature of the president of the United States cannot take away your right to your labor. But yet, most of the people in the United States today do not have a right to 100% of their labor. So what happened? What is the history of that? In order to understand that, you have to do a little bit of studying and reading. Evidently, that guy who was featured in the Epic Times uh, article hasn't read. <laughs> He's under a strong delusion that he... You know, I again, I don't know his particular case. There may be a, a circumstances I'm unaware of that he doesn't actually owe the IRS. I don't know. Uh, I know there are some people in the United States who don't owe any money to the IRS. Uh, but most people do. And they can collect that. And you should pay that, even though it is the unrighteous mammon. That's another thing that came out in the news this week. And some came to my attention, you know, like the derivative uh, margin. It used to be hundreds of millions of dollars. And we had the 2008 uh, economic collapse, well, now it's in the quadrillions. They haven't fixed the problem. They've just kicked the can down the road, and it's getting to be a mighty big can. And uh, so we see economic crashes coming in the future. Just as Rome did, during Paul's uh, travels, Nero came to power. Tiberius died, and uh, Caligula came into power. Uh, there was a, literally a revolution. Caligula, Claudius came into power. And uh, there's a whole history of this. And we've talked about him at different times. And then finally Nero came into power. And Nero is still, what Nero chose to do is still have an effect today in our politics, believe it or not. But that's another long story. But the reality is, is that 
Paul made a choice. And in this short documentary, they didn't understand that Paul made a choice to appeal to Rome. He had this case with Agrippa and, and uh, Festus, and he won that case, but he still appealed to Rome. And the reason he appealed to Rome, which I hear almost nobody explaining because almost nobody is a lawyer like Paul was. Nobody understands Roman law like Paul did. Nobody understands Judaic law like Paul did. And... uh and a lot of people don't want you to understand because then you might actually understand what the way of Christ was. But the reason Paul appealed to Rome is while his case was pending before the Roman emperor, because of the structure of the Roman courts and the apotheos of Rome being Caesar, nobody was going to want to try a Christian for failure to pay taxes to Rome because Paul's case was pending. And if Caesar ruled in favor of Paul's case, because that's what he was facing with Agrippa and, and Festus, you know, was he subverting funds that should go to the government of the Pharisees or did he have a legitimate government that he was sending them to that was recognized by Rome? Well, the... The government of Jesus Christ was recognized by Rome by Pontius Pilate. That's why we mentioned that. This plaque again that was hung on the cross that Jesus Christ is king in three languages. Jesus Christ is king of the Jews in three languages. That Jesus Christ was king of the citizens of Judea which was the remnant of the kingdom of Israel. And so anybody claiming that citizenship with the baptism of Jesus the Christ, it was after this conversion that that Paul started calling Jesus the Christ, which is to say the anointed, which is to say the Messiah. Because Messiah means anointed. He is the highest son of David. So if you recognize Jesus as your king, your social welfare taxes went to Jesus and to his Sanhedrin, to his ministers, which were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They are where you would go for your daily bread. They are where you would go to find men who would rightly divide the bread, the free bread of their society from house to house. You would not go to the temples of Jerusalem uh, that were run by uh, the Pharisees. Or the temple of Roma that was set up by Herod. Or the temple of Saturnina. Uh, or the Parthenos. Which was actually more to do with the distribution of, of welfare. The free bread and circuses of Rome. You would not go to them. And of course if you went to them you would get an ID stone. That would identify you as a member of those temples. But if you went to... Uh, the temples built by Herod, you could get an ID stone too, carved with your Hebrew name, which represents a number. And that would, you could go anywhere to any temple set up by this network of temples and uh, synagogues. And you show that stone and you would be recognized and accepted in there to receive free bread if you got caught, you know, in Corinth or someplace and you needed help. You would go there, you would go to those 
synagogues and get help. Well, the Christians had the same system through the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And that's what we see Paul doing because there were shortages in and in different places in Syria and and in Greece and they had to have ways of getting funds and supplies to these places. And they picked seven men to help facilitate that. And there's no mention of this in the story of Paul. It's just about what you know about Jesus. No, there was actually a daily ministration. And if you if you went to that daily ministration, we know that there were trials of Christians because they would not join the Roman system of welfare. And and because they had their own. We know the letters written 150 years after, uh, in 150 AD by Justin the Martyr, that, you know, he says, this is what we do. We gather every week. And those that have share with those that don't have enough. And if there's not enough in Greece to feed them, we, we will send it to them. Because we have this network that reaches all across the Roman Empire. That was Christianity. Because they would not go to the men who called themselves benefactors, but exercised authority. They didn't operate like the temples of Rome. Because they knew to to go to a man who exercises authority, to eat the, the benefits that he offers, which they refer to in Proverbs as the dainties of rulers. If you have an appetite for the dainties of rulers... You know, put a knife to your throat because he he serves you deceitful meats. Because that their table, what what should have been for their welfare, according to David, is a snare. So anybody who is coveting their neighbor's goods to these men who exercise authority is in violation of the law. And of course, that's how they snare you. That's how they bring you into bondage. That's how they return you to captivity. And that that was all throughout the Old Testament. And it's all throughout the New Testament, including Paul's letters. There's a table of which they cannot eat, which is our table. And there is a table of which we should not eat. Because it is a snare. It is a trap. It serves deceitful meats, deceitful dainties, deceitful benefits. It brings us back into the bondage. It makes us merchandise and makes our children a surety for debt. It curses our children with a surety of debt. The quadrillion derivative span there uh, of debt. We're at the point now, and we've actually been at it for some time because... What we call a dollar, the paper dollar, it, it fluctuates in value. We see that. That's why, you know, gas doesn't cost more. The dollar's worth less. Food doesn't cost more in the store. It's the dollar's worth less. And and we could go through all the reasons why, and we have, and other articles, and uh, other recordings. I was back listening to a recording that I made back in 2016 and added it to our page on homosexuality and men and women. And so that you would, you, you could listen to that because I'm showing you what the law of nature is and how we divest ourselves of that law when we think a certain way, when we go a certain way. We are changed. The way we think is changed. 
And now the way to change back to the way it should be, the natural way, the right reason, the divine will, so that we know what that is without having to listen to me. In order to do that, we have to go back to a daily ministration based on faith, hope, and charity. That is the way of Christ. If we don't go the way of Christ, we will not understand the way of Christ. It is a on-the-job learning program that Christ set up and we need to go and listen to. But we'll have to talk more about this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. <laughs> well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, to find the Keys of the Kingdom, the, the Kingdom is within you. It's within your heart and within your mind. Uh, Jesus is that door. And what unlocks that door is things like forgiveness and and thanksgiving. And no greater love hath a man than he lays down his life for his fellow man. And no greater hatred do we have for our fellow man than we send men to this house to force him to contribute to what we want. That That is the antithesis of... The gospel of Christ. The antithesis of the way. To send men to your neighbor's house to force your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free. But that is completely accepted today in the modern church, which is not the church established by Jesus Christ. It is not following the way of Christ. If you have a real need, you don't go to Christ You don't go, I mean, people say they do. You don't go to the church established by Christ. You go to the church established by men, maybe. But where do they send you? They send you to the men who exercise authority, one over the other. The governments of the Gentiles. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that we're not supposed to do that. It's not to be that way with us. That we go to these men who exercise authority. We are not to go to the fathers of the earth. And we explain that. And at preparingyou.com, we have a plethora of articles. And each of those articles lead you to other articles and explain all the different aspects of this. But the reason why we are giving you all this information, and we don't really get a lot of people to argue with. We get a lot of people that disagree, but they really can't argue because the, the entire website and all the writings, many of the books that I've published, are written in answer to when people did speak up. So I love it when people say, well, that's not true. Well, if you just say it under your breath and you don't challenge us and and show us what you got that contradicts what we're saying, Jesus was saying, then then we, we can't make a comment on it. But there have been enough brave men who stepped forward and had these conversations that we have created this website that answers most of those questions. There may be some that that I don't know that have yet to come up with, uh, but there's enough material there to take you through what is just not so. And so that you can set down the false teachings of the modern church that has led the entire world back into the bondage of Egypt. Every country you go into, the people do not own their labor anymore. 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% of their labor or more belongs to the government. That's the bondage of Egypt. 
They don't own their car. They don't own their house. They have a legal title. That's the definition. We have a whole page, legal title. Legal title does not include the ownership of the property. If you think you own it, don't pay the sticker charge on your car, which is a use tax, or don't pay the use tax on your property, which is the property tax. Don't pay it for a couple of years, and you'll find out whether or not you own it or not. They'll just, in Oregon, they just cancel your title. And they just take it all away from you. And then when they sell the property, all the money goes to the government. It doesn't go to you. In many states, that's the case. Uh, in some cases, they'll give you some of the money, but it won't be much. And they're robbing widows and orphans daily while you're going to church saying you believe in Jesus. But it's not so. It's the false church that most people are following, the false doctrines, the many false doctrines, uh, the many false people claiming to be anointed. One of the things that, uh, uh, you know, was in Antioch that you were first called Christians, which this little video on Paul says means little Christ. That's what a Christian is, a little Christ, a little anointed. That's sort of true. If we look at the original Greek, it could be that way. But a Christian is basically somebody who follows Christ, follows the anointing of Christ, follows the way of Christ. And if you're not doing what Christ said, then you're not really a Christian. You're a fake Christian, a false Christ. And there are many false Christians out there who say they believe but are actually doing contrary. And Christ said there would be many who would come in my name, although Christ is not his name, come claiming Jesus Christ, but actually are workers of iniquity. And what iniquity is that? They desire benefits at the expense of their neighbor and are willing to go to men who exercise authority to take a bite out of their neighbor so that they can have their student loan paid or free education for their children or or health care for their grandparents or their parents or whatever. So we need to rethink our private interpretation of the gospel. So what I started with at the beginning of this program, and this is going to take a while to get through all these different aspects to understand what the law really is, The law of God is the natural law, the right reason of God, not the right reason of men, but the right reason of God, because the right reason of men can be wrong. But assuming there is a right reason, a divine will, the will of the creator, the creator of heaven and earth, that is the law of nature. Now, we can have lots of different opinions about the law of nature, the same as we can have different opinions about the private, our private interpretation of the Bible. But the reality is there is a reality. There is the opinion of God, which is reality. And our opinion, you know, we can have our truth is really just our opinion. And it may be right, it may be wrong. And there's freedom of speech in the kingdom of God. So I'm telling you that most of the people out there that I come across that profess Christ are not professing the true Christ. And they have led the people astray back into the bondage of Egypt, back into captivity. Now, which Torah is correct, which, uh, which, which uh, gospel is correct, which translation of the gospel should we use? Well, what you need is the Holy Spirit in your heart and your mind. And then that will lead you. Now, Jesus 
quoted the Septuagint. We just saw early in the in in this particular show and and the previous that there's discrepancies in the Septuagint that don't match up with the, the Jewish Torah. But yet we know Jesus quoted the Septuagint because it's not the specifics of the written word. It's the spirit that giveth life. He says this. It's not the jot and tittles, although they're not going away. The, 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 the ins and outs. The jots and tittles are there in order to help you understand the Hebrew language. Because they weren't always there. Uh, and the people who put them there, they, they may not have had always the best of intention. But the Holy Spirit will trump all that. Will take you above all that. But we can see, like in Matthew one twenty three and Isaiah seven fourteen, uh, Matthew is quoting the Septuagint. Matthew, understand, Matthew is the only one who used the phrase "kingdom of heaven." Uh, he used "kingdom of heaven" and "kingdom of God," but he's the only one who used the "kingdom of heaven." He wrote specifically to Jews, so he quoted more of, you know, uh, the the Torah probably than others. He's writing it down in Greek and taking the Greek out of the Septuagint when he writes it down. Although there are slight differences even there. But, and you know, like I say in Matthew one twenty three and Isaiah 7.14, there's definitely a connection. But we can also see in Matthew 3.3 3 and Mark one three and John one twenty three are all seemingly quoting Isaiah 40 uh, verse 3. You know, talking about his path is straight. You know, uh, and uh, we should make our path straight. And our path is the way we go, the way we walk. It is not the path of Christ to go to men who exercise authority one over the other to get our daily bread at the expense of our neighbor. That's a covetous practice. Peter says we shouldn't do it. Paul says we shouldn't do it. Christ said we shouldn't do it. Moses said we shouldn't do it. The Ten Statements of God, the Ten Commandments that we know as the Ten Commandments. They say we shouldn't covet. But you can also go to other philosophers like Polybius that when the masses become accustomed to eating, you know, living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, specifically because of their appetite for benefits, they will degenerate. If you want to be regenerated, if you want to be born again of the Holy Spirit, hear these words. Repent, think differently, and seek the kingdom of God. Seek a social network that is operating not on force, not on fear, not on subjecting you to fealty to the Sanhedrin or, you know, the Sanhedrin of Herod or or the legislature or the parliament. But subjects you, sets you free from that, the handwritten ordinances, and sets you free in Christ. Matthew nine thirteen. Well, actually, you can even go to Matthew twelve seven, and, and then you read Hosea six six, and they definitely seem to be. And of course, Hosea is is one of the prophets. And we've done a study on Hosea. You go to preparing you, look up Hosea, and you can read about Hosea six six. 
But uh, Matthew twelve twenty one and Isaiah forty two, Matthew thirteen fifteen, and Isaiah six ten, all these seem to be quoting uh, parts of that ancient Septuagint in the New Testament, and uh, how these words. Uh, and these phrases work together. Uh, we see again in Matthew fifteen nine and Mark seven seven. They they are talking about the same thing, which we see in Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. Uh, these precepts of men, you know, the doctrines, the teachings as doctrines, uh, the precepts of men. Uh, we need to understand that the doctrine, and what you know, I, I will teach people a lot of things that I have discovered and found and. You know, sometimes I, I tell, you know, in the, in the recording I put up there that was back in uh, 2016, there's actually an extended version of that there on the page on homosexuality now, uh, that goes into the conversation with the next program that was following me at that particular time. And I stayed on the air for some strange reason. I stayed connected. And when I, I, uh, the the next show came on. They were talking about me, and they were talking about having me on as a guest. And I says, "Well, guess what? All of a sudden, I spoke up. I'm still on." <laughs> and so we had an additional half hour hour uh, added onto that program, and I've left it into the recording. But uh, you know, I often talk about things that I see in nature uh, because I, you know, God brought me out here to this wilderness, uh, to this high deserts in Oregon. And he told me to do certain things, and I've done them. And now I'm at the point where I'm saying, what next? And uh, so, like, next May 10th and 11th, join the network. We'll give you more details. We're going to have a gathering here at the property, and we'll probably have another fall gathering in in September or uh, somewhere in, in the fall. Uh, where we'll gather again and hopefully we'll start building this network. And I, I warn, I've told somebody this, this, just this week, when the network starts really increasing, time is getting short. Well, I can clearly see time is getting short <laughs> for our present society because of quadrillions of dollars worth of debt and, and, uh, and, uh, margins that, uh, cannot be met. And uh, food shortages on the horizon, uh, monetary collapse, uh, oil shortages, and, uh, you know, the death rate has gone up in the world. Uh, some are reporting 16% higher death rates amongst young people. Some are reporting death rates in the 20% higher levels uh, amongst the same demographics. What, what's that from? Well, it's unclear yet. But... Things are afoot. Evil is afoot. And people are suffering. And people are dying. What does this all mean? What is the answer? The answer is in the Holy Spirit of God, which should be awakened in you. You Repenting is not just saying you believe and saying, Lord, Lord. Jesus is very clear. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do with the will of the Father. That's the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you're still doing the will of of uh, of Cain, of Nimrod, of Herod, going the way of Nimrod and Herod and Cain and Caesar and, and instead of the way of righteousness, the way of Christ, in taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, 
then you have need of repentance. Because you'll find it difficult to go those ways if you really are born again of Christ. Because even in the born again, we had a show on that not too long ago on John where he talks about being born again. We have an article up, born again. It says right there in the text about being born again, if you're still doing works of iniquity, you're still taking bites out of one another, if you're still going to the men who exercise authority to get benefits at your neighbor's expense in a covetous practice, you're not born again. Now, that's a process, that being born again. So I'm not questioning your sincerity. I'm questioning whether or not you're really walking in the way of Christ or if you're just under a strong delusion. But there's all kinds uh, to establish the strength that you'll need in the days ahead. Uh, you can read Matthew twenty-one sixteen and Psalms 8, 2 because those are bearing witness. These are the two witnesses. The Old Testament and the New Testament, these are the two witnesses. Because Moses and Jesus Christ were in agreement about the law. The law was not done away with. The handwritten ordinances of men were done away with. You don't do away with them. But by conforming to Christ and the way of Christ, you may set the captive free. That's how you do it. Now, if you get into Mark 7, 6, 8 and Isaiah 29, 13 uh, that we see in the Septuagint, the people honor uh, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That's where we're at today. And again, that's Mark 7, 6, 8, Isaiah 29, 13. And of course, very clearly, I gave you several places where Christ was saying the same thing, warning us that many people will think they're saved and they think they're doing what Christ said, but they are actually workers of iniquity. They're still taking bites out of one another and now they are devoured by quadrillions of dollars in debt they will never pay back. But the same thing was going on in Egypt when the Israelites left. They had had a series of war with uh, Moses III that was bankrupting Egypt because there was a lot more going on in those histories at, at that time than most people realize. But when when they were cast out of Egypt, they were free. But now they had to survive freedom because freedom's not easy. And, of course, immediately... The Pharaoh came down on them with everything they, he had. He was going to destroy them, steal back all the gold and silver that they took with them, all the wealth and riches, and devastate them out in the desert because they no longer had Caesar or Pharaoh or Nimrod or Cain or the king of Sodom to protect them. Now they only had God to protect them. And God protected them. But they had to take that step out. But before they could take that step out, they went through a famine. They went through uh, the plagues and difficulties that we see coming with those plagues of Moses on Egypt. But they were prepared for each one. And I think if history does repeat itself, 
that is what Americans face. That's what Australians face. That's what New Zealanders face. Um, crazy things going on in their governments. Crazy things going on behind the scenes. You don't need to know all that. You certainly do not want to curse your governments. You want to seek the kingdom of God. Which operates completely differently. And the righteousness of God, which is completely different than the righteousness of the governments of the world who exercise authority one over the other, who bring you back into captivity, back into the bondage of Egypt. So we need to go this other way and we need to follow this other way of Christ and stop following the ways of unrighteousness, which is the mammon of unrighteousness. So we see in Luke 3, 5, uh, 6 and Isaiah 40, 45, crooked be made straight, rough ways, smooth shall see the salvation. So uh, there are certain phrases that are admitted in, uh, or omitted in the, the Hebrew in that verse and we'll look at that some other time. Maybe when we go through those, you know, Luke, I'm I'm working on the, the gospels that we need to go through the gospels, but I've, I've started going through all the prophets and, and a lot of the epistles because we're, we're trying to get back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and people have used the gospel according to Paul to lead us away from the actual gospel of Christ because they took Paul out of the context of Christ. And you can't do that. It will lead you astray because Paul is teaching you things that are hard to understand. So in this day and age, we have gone away from the Gospels, even though they're written right there. And we have followed after denominational religion. And there is only one denominator in Christianity, and that is Christ. So ultimately, our path back through the misunderstanding Paul, misunderstanding Peter, misunderstanding uh, the epistles, we have to eventually get back to the gospel, which was a government, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the government of God that does not operate by force, by fear, and by subjecting man to fealty, where he goes back into the bondage of Egypt, back into captivity, which is clearly where all modern Christians have gone. And I, I add the adjective modern Christians because now amongst those modern Christians, we will eventually find real Christians who will repent and come in and some at the last hour, hopefully not as late as the foolish virgins. <laughs> but uh, we are submersing ourselves in the forgiveness of Christ. And in the righteousness of Christ. And have to form that network to provide for a daily ministration for when the unrighteous mammon fails, we will be suitable for more righteous habitations. Just briefly, mammon means entrusted wealth. Uh, the golden calf was entrusted wealth. You took all your gold off. You put it in this golden calf. That was the vault. That was the reserve fund. We have an article on the golden calf. We have an article on reserve fund. And that is a mistake to go that way. But that is the way Americans have gone. Australians have gone. Uh, 
you know, Europeans have gone, Canadians have gone. I I, I heard uh, Jordan Peterson talking about Trudeau, scathing indictment of Trudeau, but also of the Canadian people, how they have been fooled. And he was sympathetic to the Canadian people. He was not very sympathetic to Trudeau. But Trudeau is just a puppet. He, he is just a victim of his own narcissism. And each of us have to deal with that narcissistic approach of ourselves where we are willing to deny the truth to keep our face. Not our faith, our face. We're, we're trying to virtue signal our way into the kingdom of God. No, it doesn't work. We have to really repent. We have to really turn around. We really have to think differently. In order for the law of God to be written on our heart and our mind. When it's written directly on our heart and mind as individuals. Then we will know what we as individuals need to do. And how to take our place in the salvation of Christ. Because he took the kingdom away from the Pharisees. And appointed it. To the apostles. But told them they were not to be like the governments of the Gentiles. Who exercised authority one over the other. They call themselves benefactors. But they only benefit others by taking away from your neighbor. And that biting one another through the agency of men who exercise authority. Has caused you to become devoured in this quadrillion dollars worth of debt. And cursed your children with that debt. As surety to that debt. A debt they will never pay off. Never hopefully pay off. But if we return to the ways of Christ, there is a way out. And I'm not going to explain all that. Couldn't do it anyway in the short time that we have left. But the reality is we need to really rethink what we think Christianity is. We're, you know, I, I, I've just thought of an, another quote, uh, Luke 4, 18 and Isaiah 61, 1. And recovering of sight to the blind opening of the prisons to them that are bound. Uh, that has a great deal of significance today because we are all bound. That guy uh, and featured in Epic Times, I never read the whole article. I just saw it and thought it was interesting. <laughs> guy's, guy's kind of sticking his head up. But he's, you know, I have sympathy for him. And I, actually, years ago, you know, over 50 years ago, Quite a bit more than 50 years ago, actually. Uh, I saw somebody who was being arrested. His land was being taken away from him and, and being sold. And he was preaching many of the same things the guy in the Epic Times was saying. And I saw in his face this fear and terror. And But I also saw this ignorance. And I always wondered. I was greatly moved by that. And maybe that was the beginning of my journey more than a lot of other things. But... We're all now in that same boat. We need repentance. Well, we'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're looking at different quotes in the Septuagint, how they were affected by... uh, the difference in the languages, and and I'm going to do more on this in the Septuagint eventually, but uh, I'm just giving you a rough idea, and it will. If those of you get copies of the recording, we'll see that uh, you, you can go back over. You know, like Luke four eighteen and Isaiah fifty eight six. Uh, nobody's going to be looking it up that quick while uh, I'm I'm 
pointing these out. But, you know, that, those are the quotes like to set, uh, at liberty those that are oppressed or, or bruised. And I uh, eventually, when I go through the gospels and make references back, we will, we will put that in the footnotes so you could actually take a look at the difference between what we have as the Hebrew today and, and the Greek because there's a lot lost in this translation. But again, it's always to point you back so that you set down the false teachings that have come to you by way of the false Christ, which we were told there would be many, so that you can turn around and seek the the true gospel, which is not an intellectual gospel of the mind, where you're going to go out and memorize all kinds of stuff and do all, forever studying and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. When it says, to study to show thyself approved, we've pointed this out many times, that word that we see there as study is not translated study anywhere else. It's actually the word for be diligent to show thyself approved. To be diligent at what? In doing the will of the Father. Because the will of God is the natural law. If you want to know what the natural law is, you have to start doing the will of the Father. The will of God. Start operating according to the right reason. And the problem is you've got a lot of ideas in your head that are not correct. They're not right reason. They're not a product of right reason. They're a product of deception, which we were told would come. And so it's not a surprise. It may be a surprise to you that you've been deceived. (laughs) But humility will take care of that. And humility is one of the critical things in, that we all need in seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything that I know today that I thought, did not know before, I know because I was willing to let go of the false beliefs that many men were trying to teach me. And and that takes humility. I can remember different other different points when I was 17. Uh, I, somebody was telling me things that uh, uh, that I... I didn't know and I was realizing that, you know, that there was a lot of deception in what I had been taught. And I said, well, they can't all be wrong. And the response was, yeah, they could. They could all be wrong. Because finding the truth is not a democracy. Finding the the truth is the truth. If nobody believes the truth, it's still the truth. It's not a result of you believing it. So again, Luke 4.18 and Isaiah 58.6, they're talking about this idea of setting the captive free. You're not free today. You may want to think you're free, but that's just pride. You know, in John 6.31, in Psalms 78.24, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And in the Hebrew, you know, it says, you know, according to the translators I'm looking at right here on, on my notes, they say food or grain. Well, you know, go back to Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the word there, hunter, is not translated hunter other places in the Bible. But uh, victuals and uh, supplies. And he was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. He was setting up a state where the social welfare was from the men who exercised authority. It wasn't from your neighbor. 
it wasn't sharing in charity, but it was sharing in compelling the contributions of your neighbor. That's how Nimrod rose to power. That's how the king of Sodom rose to power. When the people were captured, now this, this, this may be prophetic. When Sodom and Gomorrah were overrun by this army of, which was actually five armies, five different kings, were overrun by them and taken captivity. Along comes Abraham and sets the captive free. Overnight, he shows up with the whole army. And those of you who read our articles on Abraham and on uh, the sophistry of what the altars were, the altars were a system of social welfare through free will offerings. That's what the altars were. To bind society together in those social bonds that Dr. Malone talks about that we need to regenerate. Well, that's how you do it, is you create a network of charity to take care of the needy of your society. If you do it through legal charity, which Alexis Tocqueville told us about over a 100 years ago, back in the 1850s, which is well more than a 100 years ago, the legal charity will destroy you. But we can go back to 150 years before Christ. Polybius was telling us that legal charity... You know, the masses with their appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by, you know, at the expense of others, by the rule of force, will destroy society. John the Baptist was saying the same thing. Until John the Baptist, everybody in the kingdoms of the world that we see around Rome, the kingdoms of the world meaning the constitutional orders and systems of government, were starting to take care of the needy through force. Forced contributions. First they forced it from the Gauls and then the Teutons and then from the Romans themselves. They were taking care of the needy by taking away from others. But John the Baptist said, no. Do it through sharing. That is the crooks of the whole gospel of John the Baptist. The whole message of John the Baptist. Do it through sharing, through charity. You're not doing that now in your churches. You're you're doing you know, you're you're saying, Lord, Lord. But when you actually have needs for the elderly, for your parents, for the, the sick, the indigent, you go to the men who exercise authority. I don't know how you can miss that, but it was foretold that you would. But now that I'm saying it, you can hate me, change the channel, or repent. And start seeking the kingdom of God. And that's why we put together Preparing You, HisHolyChurch.org, HisHolyChurch.net, all these hundreds, thousands of recordings to try to show you what that looks like. But you have to do it. You have to become doers of the word. Because when you become the doers of the word, God will start writing on your heart and your mind. If you continue to do the opposite of what Jesus said, and imagine you're born again, Imagine that you're saved. The captive will not be set free. So John twelve thirty eight, Isaiah 53, 1. Who hath uh, believed our report? Uh, who has believed our message? Who believes what I'm telling you now? That That's a question. You can answer. I mean, we can go on further to John twelve forty. 
which takes us to Isaiah 610 because it's not always in order if you if you if you're looking at in order of, uh, of the way it's written in the the Gospel of John he he may be pulling stuff from earlier in Isaiah which is Isaiah uh, chapter 6 verse 10 lest they should see with eyes turn for me to heal them. So, are you willing to be healed by God? I'm willing to be healed by God. (laughs) But their eyes are shut up. But it is not with our physical eyes. Now, God can heal our physical eyes. That's, That's true. But why will he heal our physical eyes if we will not allow our spiritual eyes to be opened? We we even see this quoting of the Old Testament in Acts uh, as well. Acts 2.19, Joel uh, 2.30. Blood and fire and vapor uh, of smoke. And we see blood and fire in the Old Testament and pillars uh, or columns of smoke. Well, that, you know, we see that the, these phrases pulled out of the Septuagint in the Greek appearing in the uh, New Testament. But most people don't understand what they're talking about in the Old Testament. And even the physical realities in the Old Testament, the pillar of fire and column of smoke that the Israelites followed, is symbolic of what we should actually be following. Because it was always the goal of God that he write upon the hearts and minds of the Israelites. But their hearts were too hard. And, you know, so he wrote on stone. Instead of on their hearts. But some men here and there. Are the actual sources of the blessings for the whole nation of Israel. And we see that in the in Abraham's discussion. With you know the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where he says if I could find you know a hundred good men. If I could find ten good men. <laughs> That's often it's those few good men that are saving the whole. But what will happen and, and happen we see in that that case is that those who are willing to follow God need to know when to leave, when to get out of Dodge, so to speak. Well, if you're not accustomed to listening to the Holy Spirit in your heart and your mind, you will not know when to leave, or you will turn back because when you go to leave, it'll be more frightening than you think going back is. The the fact is, is every day we're either stepping towards the kingdom of God or we're stepping away from it. Every day we're either conforming to the ways of the Holy Spirit or we're rejecting the ways of the Holy Spirit. If you reject the ways of the Holy Spirit, you will not hear his voice. He will not guide you. You cannot save yourself by endless repetition that you do believe, you do believe, you do believe. You actually have to believe and act upon that belief because that is your confession. That is your testimony. What you do is your testimony, not what you say. Not what if you say, Lord, Lord, but if you do the will of the Father. And then you will know 
the law. And and maybe you could actually be on a jury <laughs> and decide fact and law. And you'd be worthy of that. We don't realize that for 400 years, Israel was taking care of all the needy of its society through faith, hope, and charity, through free will offerings. They don't, like I say, they don't have the word charity in the, in the translation of the Old Testament, but we have a word for free will offering. Corbin was a free will offering, but under Herod, Corbin was not a free will offering. It was a forced offering. You signed up. You got the baptism of Herod. You had to pay in a portion of what you produced. And then that funded the building of the temple. It funded the social welfare system of Herod and the Pharisees. But it made the word of God to none effect. Because it was by force, not by faith. It was not by charity and hope. But it was by a compelled offering of the men who exercised authority one over the other. And if if Christ said anything, he said we were not to be that way. Today, 2,000 years later, that is the way most Christians operate. They operate by force. They take care of the needy of their society, the bread of their society, through force, through the men who exercise authority, who were the fathers of the earth. We have an article on that. If you haven't read that, go read that. Hopefully all this will still be up and available. Because one day, internet will come down in a twinkling of an eye. And a lot of other things will come down. You know, Acts 7.14 and go all the way back to Genesis 46.27 and Deuteronomy 10.22. Stephan says, 75 souls went down to Egypt. 70 people went. 70. That's a 70 again. Uh, that's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was never meant to be a legislature making laws for the people. It, on our article on the Sanhedrin, you can go and you can find uh, what the Sanhedrin was actually and where they started. Well, of course, they started to go the wrong way when they chose a king. and uh, But... When the, later on, the Sanhedrin was perverted into a legislature making laws for the people. Those were the handwritten ordinances because the Sanhedrin set up by Christ was not making statutes. It was setting the captives free. Not only from the statutory laws of the Sanhedrin of Herod, but from the misinterpretations of the statutes of Moses, which are meant to be guiding you to that right reason of God, not the faulty reason of men. And, you know, what is that right reason of God? Can I put that in a bottle? Can I put that in a book and give it to you? I can talk about it. But it isn't the endless study. It's the diligence of your feet and your hands seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is where we need to go. And we see in Acts 7, 27 and even into verse 28, Exodus 2, 14. It uses the word ruler. The judge killed the Egyptian 
what is that about? Remember, I, I've, I've talked about this uh, a couple of times because we have this opinion of Moses or this vision of Moses or this perspective of Moses. Uh, a lot of it is based on the movie. And the movie is supposedly based on the writings of uh, not only uh, the Bible, uh, but also Philos. And uh, it's a scripted movie. It's not accurate. It jumps all over the place, you know. Even even the uh, movie, uh, which I I love the movie, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. I thought it was a great production. It's not accurate. <laughs> it's all over the place. But I, I like the acting, and and I think a lot of the message was good. But there's a danger in that dramatization because we begin to personify Christ in our mind. We create an image of Christ, an image of God, an image of Moses in our minds. And that image can get in the way of the actual revelation of who Moses was, who Jesus was, who God is. And we have to be careful of that. So there's always this danger lurking. Ultimately, it is that Holy Spirit, that comforter that needs to write upon our hearts and upon our minds. Yeah, Moses left Egypt, in in my humble opinion, because he saw himself becoming a tyrant. Because he was given power over the people. Because he was the rightful heir to the throne of Egypt. And that power caused him to take a life when he shouldn't have taken a life. And... He repented of that, but he also feared it. And he went out to the desert and learned not to exercise authority. To And, and with that willingness not to exercise authority and learning to get along with others and, and help with others and provide for others and becoming a true servant leader amongst the Ishmaelites and Jethro and others that he was able to come back and not exercise authority. Which is what Christ, Christ did not come to rule over you except in your hearts and your mind through the Holy Spirit of God. And I don't want to rule over you either. I want the Holy Spirit to rule over you. But right now, many of you come and are hearing this and somebody else is already ruling over you in your heart and your mind. In the images that they have put in your heart and your mind based on private interpretations of the Bible. So I give you alternatives that say, well, maybe that's not what they meant. But I don't want you to go out and try to memorize. And I have, I've warned about this. I, I talked about an individual that was, I could hear him quoting me exactly. Word by word. And there's nothing wrong in that necessarily, but I worried that it wasn't written on his heart. And sure enough, he fell away from the way. Not, well, fell away from me, although it doesn't have too much to do with me anymore. But uh, he fell away from the word because it wasn't written on his heart. He he, He made the gospel an intellectual quest. That's, you're, you're not gonna find the tree of life in the branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is a separate tree. It It isn't about your reasoning. It is right reason. Tree of life is full of right reason because it's full of the will of God and the righteousness of God. 
But in order to eat of the tree of life, you have to see that you've been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have to admit that. You have to come into the light of the fact that you haven't been obeying God and Christ. And this is what Adam and Eve found difficult. They hid from God. They couldn't come near the tree of life. Because they would have to come into the light and see themselves as they had become. And so the journey within can be painful. To see that you really aren't following the ways of Christ. You're following your doctrines. The doctrines of men. The doctrines of your own imagination. I don't want you to follow the doctrines of my imagination either. I'm I'm basically saying make straight the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord is the way of love. The way of sacrifice. The way of charity. The way of caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You can't do that unless you try to find out what's going on in your neighbor's life. And that's why you gather. You gather to be of service to your neighbor. To find opportunities where you can lay down your life for your fellow man. So that God will give you a life more abundant to pick up. This is between, this is an individual journey of the individual together with other individuals. Where we do not step on one another's toes, we do not take away one another's rights, we do not take away one another's property, but we have faith in the way of Christ, which is the way of love, which is the way of charity, and not the way of force, which all these countries, Australia, New Zealand, uh, United States, Mexico, Uruguay, Guatemala, Canada, Europe, Scandinavian countries, uh, England, they all covet their neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority one over the other. And they're moving more and more that way. And they're moving that way in mass. It's like the, the armies of Mor- Mordor. <laughs> are on the march and here you are here I am we need to come together according to the righteousness of Christ and that is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the way the early church did it was in tens hundreds and thousands very clear Christ commanded that his disciples express that as a divine way in which to come together but what really makes it divine is if you're coming together with actual love in your heart for one another where you actually love one another as much as you love yourself at least as much some of you may love one another even a little more than yourself (laughs) Paul was willing to sacrifice himself by appealing to Rome He felt he needed to do that. And he chose to do that. And eventually it led to his death. But of course now, you know, what he was doing in Rome all that time, where he was in Rome, supposedly under house arrest, people draw all kinds of pictures, like he had a big ball and chain, chained to his leg. He was in a particular area of Rome with actual relatives of Paul. But that's another whole story we'll have to save for another time. But join us on the network. Go to preparingyou.com, hisholychurch.org. 
find the network links, join in your local area, start forming those congregations and start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.